You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. Well, we're going to continue in our Hebrew series, and this morning we have a couple short passages to read, kind of bounce from one to the next. Um, You can follow along. They're not too long, but these short passages have, um, they proclaim an incredible reality, an incredible reality for the Christian. Um, as Jesus is our great high priest. And we'll, so we'll, we'll look at that. We're going to read uh, Hebrews 2, 14 to 18, and then bounce over to 4, 14 to 16. We'll have the, those passages on the screen, or you could follow along in your Bibles. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. Chapter 4, verse 14. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is God's word. To help explain, I think, the, the function of Jesus as our great high priest, I, I want to start with this story um, from my first speeding ticket. But not my last, but my first speeding ticket. It's actually, it actually wasn't a speeding ticket. It was a, it was a highway racing ticket. So I was going a little faster. And the reason I got the ticket was because I lost um, I was on the way to a homecoming dance. I was 16 years old and racing a friend to, to dinner and obviously very foolish and reckless and dangerous and irresponsible. And, and not only did I experience the, the humiliation of, of losing the race and got pulled over and I'm the one that lost, so I got the ticket, but the humiliation that comes with confrontation uh, with the law, uh, confrontation uh, with punishment and and uh, where I was at the time in, in Kentucky, when you're a minor, you go above the speed limit at a certain, uh, a certain level. Uh, you don't just get a speeding ticket, you have a court date. You go to court, and not only do you have to go to court, as a minor, you have to bring a parent. And so the humiliation and fear began to build. I lost the race. I was confronted with the police officer. It was very intimidating. Now I have to go tell my dad what happened, and he has to accompany me to court. And then the impending, you know, uh, an anticipation of going to court and preparation and the fear of standing before a judge. And so there's a lot of fear going on in my life. It was very scary. And so in preparation to meet the judge this day, I come up with a great idea. I'm going to defend myself before the judge and, and prove to him that I'm not a bad guy. I just did something bad. I made a mistake. I put on my finest uh, silk shirt, uh, <clears throat> it was the 90s, 
This made a big impression. I put on my finest silk uh, shirt. I gathered all my academic certificates and awards. Not kidding. I, if I had an honor roll certificate, I put it in an envelope. If I had a, a, a report card showing A's and B's, I, I put it in the envelope. I mean, if I, I put it in the envelope, I think probably a finger painting from like the third grade. I mean, anything that showed me as a good kid, I, I stuffed this manila envelope full and brought it to court to defend myself before this judge that I was good even though I had done bad things. We go to court, I'm terrified. I have my giant folder that's overflowing with my achievements, ready to make my case. He calls me forward, he says, so it says here you were speeding on I-71, going 91 in a 55, is that true? Yes, your honor. Your fee is $325 plus court fees. The cashier will see you on the way out. Next. I got nexted by the judge. I didn't even get a chance, a chance to defend myself, I, a chance to show him what a good kid I was. No chance to persuade, no chance to defend, only judgment. I was, I was mortified, not only for the consequence now of having to be accountable to my lawlessness, but the disappointment that came that I didn't get to prove my worth. I didn't, didn't get to tell him of all the good things I had done. I think often we bring the same mentality when we come before God in our relationship with God. We either pretend that our sins are not that bad and don't have much of a defense, or we attempt to perform before God, bringing our case before God based on our merit, our character, our record, our achievements. There's a similar way that we go before God seeking to defend ourselves based on all that we have done. But there's another way to approach God because that way is very ineffective. When we defend ourselves before God, the Bible asks us who can defend themselves before God, who standing before God based on their own character and record has confidence at all. There's another way to approach God and that is through the ministry of the high priest. These passages describe Jesus as our high priest and it has everything to do with how, pe how guilty people stand before a righteous and just God. Our passage reveals these, these three aspects of Jesus as our high priest, which is so important to each of us. We are going to see the purpose of the high priest, which we already briefly kind of touched on, but we'll do a little more. The sympathy of the high priest and the invitation of the high priest for all of us. Why don't we look at the purpose a little more fully a purpose as Jesus as our high priest. You know, these passages really do kind of read out like a courtroom experience, like a courtroom trial. And it's all because of the covenant relationship that God has with his people. A covenant is a, is a binding agreement between two parties with blessings and agree, in, in agreement if the agreements are upheld and curses when the agreement is broken. God took himself a people in the Old Testament. He, he approached uh, the, uh, the Hebrews and said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And every time there was a conflict between God and his people, whenever his people rebelled against him, disobeyed him, transgressed into sin, all that stuff, whenever they failed to obey God, they went into the courtroom of heaven. And we see this throughout scripture a lot. And both would bring witnesses and both would bring a defense and if the people were proven wrong, then God would be vindicated and the people would be punished. 
But if God was proven wrong, then the people would be vindicated and God would be punished. And I need to tell you, God remains undefeated. (laughs) He has never lost, undefeated in the courtroom. He has never lost a case. And that's how it worked in the covenant relationship. And the original hearers of of these passages talking about the high priest will understand this. They, They knew this is how God worked. And the only escape from punishment for sin was through a sacrifice brought by the high priest into the temple of God to, in their place, to make atonement and propitiation for their sins. The only way for that relationship to be reestablished, for their sins to be forgiven, and for their communion with God to be reconciled was through the ministry of the high priest. In the Old Testament, once a year, the high priest would enter the innermost chamber of the temple. They would provide sacrifice in the outermost area. Then they would go into the inner court. And then they would go into the innermost court where the presence of God would dwell there at the t- in, the, in the temple, and it's there the high priest would make a blood sacrifice of a bull or a lamb or a goat to forgive the sins of God's people. The high priest represented God's people to God because we know that we cannot go to the presence of God, making defense for ourselves. We cannot defend ourselves. We do this even now in civil law. It is the most foolish thing to say, I think we're just going to defend myself. And, and I think any, anyone with any brains would say, that's not a great idea. You need a defender. You need someone in your place. You need a representative. You need someone to go before you to appeal your case. And this was the high priest. And it was never based on the character or the people. It was never based on their record. It was based on the sacrifice of the blood offering that would be brought. The high priest represented all the people. And and if he did everything that God had asked him to do through the ritual blood sacrifice, God would accept the sacrifice as a substitute for the punishment of the sins of God's people. And so the purpose of the high priest was to represent God's people to God and to reconcile them to one another so that they might be forgiven of their sins. And here he was saying, Jesus is the greater high priest. Jesus is the greater representative. Jesus is the greater substitute. Jesus is the greater sacrifice. In verse 17 of chapter two, we read, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to do what? To make propitiation for the sins of the people. This was Jesus' task. This is his own reason, the whole reason he came to earth. The ultimate purpose of him coming to earth was to reconcile sinners to God so that we could experience the forgiveness of sins. Whenever we sin, we come to the courtroom of God. And we bring a folder filled with our greatest accomplishments. We are tempted to defend ourselves, to pretend that we aren't as bad as we are, to perform before God based on our achievements. We 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 are tempted to bring our most noble intentions to God. I'm getting better. I won't do this again. I'm not as bad as I could be. And we come with far too little. Because when we are 
defending ourselves, we come guilty. When we stand before God, we are guilty before we even stand in there. And like the judge that was before me, he cares very little about how we might explain ourselves. But for those who see themselves as utterly deserving of punishment and believing in Christ, we have Christ who represents us to God. And he acts as a propitiation. And and this is one of those words I know everyone here has studied. (laughs) What does that mean? It's one of those theological, biblical words that we read, we know it's important, and then we skip over it. Let's dig into this a little bit. What does it mean? It means to show mercy. It means to lift punishment. Now pay attention to this imagery. When the high priest, in God's law, the high priest was instructed in specific ways to make sacrifice, blood sacrifices specifically for the sins of God's people. And when they are to take that bull or that goat or that lamb and they were to go before God and they were to slaughter this animal and they were to cut the throat of this animal where the blood would be drained, they would place their hand on the head of the animal to hold it down. So they would grasp the head and they would hold it. You imagine this, right? This is graphic. And so stick with me. It's supposed to be a little graphic. They're holding, the, the animals don't come willingly, right? They come fighting for their life. And so the priest is to hold down the head of the animal and slaughter. This was specific instruction. Place your hand on the head of the animal to hold it down because judgment is coming. To propitiate means to lift your hand. This is graphic. It's supposed to be. This is why Jesus was born into the world. So that by his death, he might release the hand of God that was on our head and place it on his own. Our forgiveness doesn't depend on God's nature changing. It's not that God looks on us and says, you know, I was a wrathful God needing, you know, punishment for your sin. I needed to, to carry out justice, but now I'm just a God of love and grace. It is not that God's nature changed towards us. It is that, and here's the beautiful thing about what Christ did. It is that our nature changed. We come guilty, and because of what Jesus has done for us, we are told that we are credited with the righteousness of Christ by grace through faith. And that God has no reason to hold his head, hand upon our head in judgment anymore because we are seen as innocent in the eyes of his law. Not because we have done something good, but because Jesus has done something perfect for us in our place. Now you know what propitiation means. Feels a little more than just forgiveness and mercy and reconciliation. You know, do your past sins worry you? Um, Are they a burden to you? Do they haunt you? Are you afraid of facing God because of them? And if you're not, why is that? Is it because you have reconciled within yourself that you're not as bad as you, as you, as you think or as the Bible says you are? Is it because as you compare yourself to others, you're doing better than most? Is it because you're trying really hard? All of those, none of those things lift the hand of God from our head. The only thing that lifts the hand of God from our head is for God to see us 
as he sees Jesus. And the only way for that to happen is by his grace to be poured out on us and through the instrument of repentance and faith coming before God, recognizing our guiltiness, recognizing our lawlessness, recognizing our need and crying out for his mercy and seeing Jesus becoming that lamb, becoming that lamb of God that was slaughtered in our place, dying on the cross for us. You know, these are, these are some simple questions that the Bible asks about our sins. Do they haunt us? Do they trouble us? Do they make us weary? Do they, do they make us afraid about meeting with God? But the Bible also tells us this, but the man and woman and child who trust in Jesus has their names written on the shoulders of Christ. When he, nails on the, when he dies on the cross, those sins die with him. And we are forgiven. This is his purpose as our high priest. This is why he came. And it's amazing. And that would be enough to see this as, his, as Jesus forgiving us and going to that uh, cross in our place and lifting God's hand of judgment from our head. It's amazing. We are grateful, but it goes on. He showers us with his blessing. He showers us with his kindness and his grace. He is more to us than just one who forgives us. He is a, he's a high priest with sympathy and kindness. We see something of his sympathy as our high priest. We go on to that next point, his sympathy as our high priest. What is Jesus like as our high priest? We know what he does. We know what he came to do and what to accomplish. But what is he like in verse 18? Because he himself has suffered when tempted. He's able to help those who are being tempted. And in chapter 4, 15, this is one of those memorable verses that many of you probably know. This is one of those, those great passages in the New Testament that we love to memorize. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And in those verses, we, there's something there that we want to go beyond that objective, just like, I know Jesus died for me, and we want to have a personal experience with God. We want to commune with him. We want to know he cares for us. We want to know that he's fighting for us. We want to know that he is capable of accomplishing in us all his promises. So there's something here about the high priest, not just in his function, but in his relationship of care to us on a day-to-day -day basis. Let me ask you this. Do you ever look at someone's life and say to yourself, I really wish I had what they had. I really want their life. Of course you do. We all do that. Their life seems good. It seems so easy. It seems so put together. It seems so ideal. It seems like they're hitting all the benchmarks in life that you're supposed to. It seems like nothing really goes wrong. I want that. You know, their family, their pictures online, their smile, they're always smiling. They always seem like everything's doing fine. I want to be like that. Listen, they have a tripod probably set up. <laughs> we know that that's fake, right? We know that that's not real. We know it's never true. There is suffering. There is temptation. There's sadness. There's grief. No one looks as good as they would like to be portrayed online. And if you think about it like that, realize this. 
no one has ever said these things about Jesus. Oh man, I really wish I had his life. No one ever says that. It seems so ideal. It actually sounds pretty miserable. I, I wish that I had his experiences. I, he got it so easy. His life was so filled with comfort and ease. And everything he did, it just seemed like he floated through life and God's favor was on him. No one ever says that. And let me tell you why. Because there are two things that the Bible tells us are the mark of authentic human experience. Suffering and temptation. This is what it means to be authentically human. To suffer and to be tempted. These are the two things that mark the human experience. And these are the two things, when we look at Jesus, mark his life. That he was acquainted with grief and suffering and temptation. And this was his life. And it led to his death and he did nothing wrong. And so when the Bible tells us that we have a high priest who's able to sympathize with us, who suffered like us, who's tempted like us, yet he never gave up, he never gave in, he never sinned, not even once. And why did he do this? Why did he take on the human experience? Why did he become fully human? It is so that he could sympathize us with us when we experience the human life of suffering and temptation. And yet we are ones guilty of that. We are, none of us can complain to God for the life that we have and the suffering that we experience. We deserve it. And yet Jesus doesn't deserve it as the righteous son of God who has never sinned. He chooses to lay aside his right as the son of God in glory and he takes on human flesh through the humiliation of being born as a human and to go on through the life, a life of suffering and weariness and hunger and thirst and reject and betrayal and eventually death. And so here's another great blessing of having Jesus as our high priest. Here's why he is better. Here's why he's greater than anyone and anything that has ever lived for any time. When we fall into sin and we feel shame and become depressed, we are reminded that we have an advocate with God, Jesus Christ. But there's more. It's like an infomercial, but there's more. You're like, that's great, I'm getting it. No, but there's more. This is when the infomercial becomes like colorful. <clears throat> yeah, you're with me. Not only does he forgive us, and not only do we have an advocate with God, Jesus Christ, who forgives our sins, he understands our struggle, and he doesn't leave us to ourselves, not once. He has been in this world, and he knows your struggle and your pain, and he has felt all the force of the human experience more than you have, in fact, and therefore he is better able to carry us through it. Now, I know what you might say to this, and I've said it many times. <clears throat> There's something that feels, I think, a little incomplete when we say, well, Jesus, he went through your life. He knows what it's like to be human. He suffered, he was tempted, and he never sinned. And for me, my, my temptation is to then say, well, then he doesn't truly understand. It's easy. <laughs> I mean, not, maybe not easy, but come on. He doesn't know what it's like to be me. 
There's a metaphor that was helpful years ago, and, and I want to share it with you that may be helpful for you too in light of that. Um, because there is a temptation to say, <clears throat> well, Jesus was perfect. How could he know what it's like to be me in this world with these struggles? That's not, it's not, it's not the same. Well, it's a fair question to ask that. Now consider two people walking through a snowstorm. And this is the worst snowstorm. I mean, the winds, you know, gusts are up to like 50 miles an hour. And it's just the worst snowstorm that you could ever imagine. And you are just leaning into the wind and the snow is frozen and the ice little shards are just like, they're cutting your cheeks and your legs are numb and you are weary and tired. And you don't know if you can make it. And yet you must carry on, you must press on, and you lean into the wind, but it ultimately becomes too great of a force. It's too painful, it's too much, and so you lay down. You lay down to go below the wind, to get some respite from the pain, to take a little break, because you can't bear it anymore. But the person that you are traveling with continues. They continue to press on, they continue to press into the wind. They take the beating from the ice that is going across their face. They never give up. They keep going until they reach their destination. They never in their weariness take a moment's rest. They never take a break. They never get comfort from laying down like you do. Now let me ask you this, which person understands the pain of the storm more? The one who took a break or the one who kept enduring? It's the one who kept going, and that is Jesus. And so to look at Jesus and, and for the Bible to say he was tempted, he suffered, but he didn't sin, doesn't mean that he got it easier. It actually means he got it harder. He didn't give up. He knows what it's like to endure the storm. We don't. We give up. We lay down. We say, it's too hard. I'm giving in to my desires. I need a break. I need to be comforted by these worldly pleasures. And we take a moment and then we get back up. We do not know what it is like to truly endure in this world faithfully. And Jesus knows the full weight of the storm and he takes it all the way to the cross where he knows the full weight of God's punishment for all those who have laid down. The fact that Jesus endured the suffering and temptation of this life yet never sinned, never gave up, actually makes him more acquainted with suffering than you do. The fact that he never sinned makes him more acquainted with what it's like to be human than you do. And so he understands. And sometimes we want a friend who has gone through our same pain and our same struggle and sinned in the same ways, and we feel comforted by that. But let me tell you that it's actually a greater, a greater high priest, a greater friend, a greater representative that we have in Christ who never gave up than a friend who has given up. Because Jesus knows it all. He has felt it all, all the way to the point of death. This is who we have. This is who loves us. This is who gave his life for us. And this is who invites us into a deep and meaningful relationship with him. Here's the invitation of the high priest. 
as our passage goes on to show us. This is really an invitation to take our faith beyond the intellectual, beyond the objective, in a sense of I know the truth, I know the facts, I know what Jesus has done. He's ascended into heaven and seated at the right hand of the Father on high. And so we know all this stuff, right? We know all these facts. But then there's a subjective part about being a Christian where the objective goes further and it, and it comes into our experience. It transforms our emotions. It transforms our desires. It transforms our dreams and our hopes and our fears into an experience with God that meets our needs in the immediate present of every moment of every day that we have a God who cares for us and invites us to rely and depend on him completely. What would it look like for you to take this invitation in this passage to take it and to live by it? The invitation that says this, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in a time of need. We know that, right, objectively. What would that look like to do that right now? to draw near without fear, to go into the courtroom knowing that we are approaching God not as a, 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 an angry judge condemning our sin, but a, a faithful, compassionate, sympathetic father who welcomes us home into his arms, ready to forgive and to meet our needs. These truths are life-giving These truths are life in themselves. This is where we find life. The truth of the gospel is what rescues us and forgives us, but it's also the truth of the gospel, of God's grace and our dependency upon it for our every moment of every day. We need him in our struggle today as much as we needed him when we first gave our life to him and asking him for forgiveness of our sins. So we must ask ourselves whether we really believe these things to be true and real in us. Ask yourself, are you enjoying the reality of the forgiveness of God's mercy? Are you enjoying the reality that you are forgiven and you stand before God credited with the righteousness of Christ because of his grace and your faith? As a one who stands not without, in a legal status of innocent before God, He brings no condemnation, no prosecution. Are you enjoying the access to God's ear through prayer and communion with God as our high priest? Are you enjoying that? The privilege that you have, I mean, what I've heard it said that it's like it's like a child going into the king's chambers in the middle of the night and waking him up to ask for a glass of water. Only a, only a son can do that. Only a daughter can do that. To interrupt, to interrupt the king. Do you know the access that you have constantly, unceasingly, to have the ear of God and his care for you? Are you enjoying the help that God promises for those who seek him? Come to, the, come to the throne room with confidence, not with fear. Come knowing that God accepts you through Jesus Christ. Come knowing that your sins are forgiven. Come and ask for what you need because God is ready and willing and joyful to help. When? Whenever you need it. In your time of need. So that his grace, his kindness, 
His favor would fill you with all that you need. It is the saddest thing in the world to be a person who knows that they are forgiven, yet live each day with uncertainty and doubt of God's ongoing care. It is the saddest thing for a Christian to say, I know that I am forgiven and justified by God's grace through faith, but every day I'm miserable. And I don't know if God cares. And I don't know how I'm gonna get through this. And I don't know if he's listening to a word I have to say. Isn't that a sad reality? Well, they go together. One does not happen without the other. We are forgiven and there's much more. And so here's what our invitation invites us into. It invites us to remember that Christ is near you right now. To remember that he holds you in his hand and he cares for you. To remember that he's able to strengthen you when you are tempted. To remember that he never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And to remember, as the Bible tells us, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, it keeps going, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, where? In Christ Jesus. We look at Jesus and we see all the love of God poured out for us on the cross. Take the invitation. Rest in him. Trust in him. 